if we look forward to Jesus's return, if we're looking forward to that sinlessness and we realize all that Jesus did to buy that for us, to pay for our sins, then we're going to be more pure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today we come to Paul's letter to Titus, and to help us unpack this small but significant text, we welcome to the podcast Jonathan Ward. Jonathan serves as the Associate Professor of Bible and Theology at the Owen Sound campus of the Word of Life Bible Institute right here in Ontario. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for helping us out. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. It's great to be back. When we come to the book of Titus, Jonathan, where do we find ourselves in the story of Scripture? What's the context of this short book? Well, as we read through the book of Acts, we have Paul's uh, missionary journeys. And in Acts chapter eight, or 28, we find him under house arrest in Rome. And as he writes what's known as the prison epistles, in a number of them, he talks about wanting to come and see these churches. So to the Philippians, his his supporting church, he he wants to come and visit them once he gets out of jail. To uh, Philemon and the church in his house at Colossae, he says the same thing. And he has a lot of freedom. Friends are coming and going. And so we believe that after his trial, or his acquittal, whatever it was at the um, after the book of Acts, that he got out and traveled on what some people call as a fourth missionary journey, where he traveled uh, back around Asia Minor. He left t- uh, Timothy at Ephesus. He leaves Titus on the island of Crete, and then he continues his journey. And it's believed from Macedonia, possibly from Philippi, that uh, church that supported him so often, he writes this letter back to a young protege named Titus. Though this book is a bit shorter, as I've said, it's only three chapters long, Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of important and practical content packed in there. Mm -hmm. Is there an outline of the book that you can give us that will help us get our minds around the whole before we get into some of those parts? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it was Martin Luther that said that this book is a model of Christian doctrine and practice. And uh, it, it is only a few hundred words. I think it's 700 and some words in Greek. And so it is very small, uh, but it does have a great outline. In chapter one, we need to protect sound doctrine. So in chapter one, protecting sound doctrine, and we do that by uh, appointing and making sure that we have qualified leaders. So chapter one, protecting sound doctrine, and then chapters two and three, producing good works. Hmm. Uh, Because as we'll see in a little bit later, sound doctrine produces good works. Hmm. You know, faith without works, as James says, is is dead. And he says it three times in chapter two. Uh, I like to rearrange that argument a little bit to say, we always live our faith. Hmm. So what faith are we living? But here in Titus, protecting sound doctrine produces good works. So chapter one, and then chapters two and three. That's a very clean outline. Mm-hmm. Now, right out of the gate, we find something interesting in this book. In his greeting, Paul makes a point of highlighting God's reliability. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. 
Jonathan, given the rest of the letter, is there a reason that God's trustworthiness is put at the front end of the letter? Yeah, absolutely. I think, first of all, to establish whose authority these words are, um, it's not just Paul, you know, some guy on a power trip that's left this young punk Titus to, to take care of stuff. But Paul is going to give him some pretty strong directives here on the island of Crete. And I think he wants to establish that authority. Ben Ware actually describes um, this word as the, the God who gives us eternal promise cannot lie. The statement that God cannot lie is actually the, uh, an adjective, Ben Ware says. He is the cannot lie God. Hmm. So this is giving us a quality of God right here at the beginning you know, these commands are from a God who cannot lie. And that is in direct contrast to the reputation of those living on the island of Crete. In fact, when you say the word Cretan, it has very negative connotations. And they were famous for lying. Uh, they were famous for, uh, they actually made a famous type of wine on the island and they really like to drink it. I mean, and later in chapter two, for old men, young men, older ladies, younger ladies, being sober is going to be a major issue. So the Cretans are pretty famously liars and drunkards and kind of out of control. And that quote comes from chapter two, when Paul says the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And that's actually a quote from Epimenides. Uh, a, a Greek philosopher hundreds of years before. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. They've been saying this about the Cretans for hundreds of years. And they are, they're liars, they're, they're drunken and they're wild animals. So, and there's a lot that you can bring out of that as well. But um, this is really saying God cannot lie. And this is the one that we're going to follow. And it is in direct contrast to the culture that Titus is working in. So Titus had a very challenging ministry, for sure. Now, you mentioned earlier in outlining the book that the first section is talking about protecting sound doctrine. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that Titus is instructed to protect sound doctrine is to put qualified leaders in place. So what should we notice about the characteristics of church elders that Paul gives to Titus in chapter 1, 5 through 9? And perhaps most especially in contrast to the false teachers that are threatening the assembly, which he talks about in verses 10 through 16. Yeah, in verse 6, an elder, uh, a church leader has to be blameless. And that blamelessness kind of undergirds everything. And it's not saying that we have to find, you know, we have to find men that are absolutely per perfectly holy and Christ-like. But we have to have men that are growing in their faith. We have to have men that have kept short accounts with people. They make their wrongs right. And uh, I was planning on talking this a little bit later, but the directive given to young men in chapter two and verse six, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. And I think that really is, you know, preparing young men for this kind of blameless leadership in the church is when someone says something bad about us, other people that hear it should say, what are you talking about? That's, that's not that guy. You're crazy. 
And so I think that's the major characteristic. And it goes on to explain, you know, the husband of one wife. And that's why we're talking specifically about men with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. I think we can examine how our kids turn out on a case by case basis, because our children are choosers. We can choose to raise them the best possible, but they can walk away from the Lord. Now, uh, John MacArthur takes a very intense stand on this one and basically says, if a guy's kids walk away from the Lord, even after he raised them well, that he can't be a pastor or an elder. I think there's room for a case-by-case examination here, but we certainly have to be able to run our own house, houses. And that's what verse seven says, as an overseer of God's house, blameless once again, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as he's been taught. And so certainly some one that is mature, as First Timothy 3 says, not one newly planted, that he may be able both to encourage with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. So there's a strong emphasis here on the word as well. And these are in direct contrast to the false teachers that we see in chapter two, you know, and so in chapter two, we have the regular problem of Cretan culture, but then you also have a, a Judaizer influence that have, that have come in. And what are those people like? They want preeminence. They want control. They want power over people. And I mean, similar to a Diotrephes in uh, third John. Mm-hmm. So yeah, strong contrast here. We have to have men of character that aren't self-willed and aren't you know, looking to make something for themselves, but are willing to serve God and others. What would you say is the connection between sound doctrine, which he ends with here, particularly in verse nine, being what we're supposed to protect and the character of the overseers? Could we not have sound doctrine with lackluster character? Why are these two so important to both be in place? Uh, Belief determines behavior. Convictions determine conduct. Doctrine determines deeds. Mm -hmm. I heard it said one time, what I say I believe is not what I believe. What I believe is defined by my actions and my integrity. And that kind of stuck with me. But again, it reminds me of James 2. Faith without works is dead. I live my faith. So if my life doesn't line up with the gospel and the principles of God's word, it means I don't really believe. I really don't. And that's that's the real test of faith. And we have this very dangerous thing, I think, in North American Christian culture where, you know, if we go to church, if we say the right things and we don't go to certain places or we don't talk certain ways, at least around church and family, you know, and, you know, we just do the once a week thing, throw some money in the offering plate, then, you know, we're good with God, but that's not what God is looking for. We can have all the right doctrine in the world, but if we're not living it out, then we we really don't have faith in that doctrine. We really don't have a relationship with the God that gave us that doctrine and And it will show up in our lives. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them, you know, and in that same passage in Matthew seven, you know, there are people that are going to stand before Jesus someday. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And those are people that the passage says they've done many wonderful works in Jesus's name, but he doesn't know them because there is this disconnect of doctrine and deeds or even deeds without proper doctrine, without a relationship with God. Another common stance I hear today, and maybe you hear the same, is that doctrine is divisive. Mm. And so here we have Paul writing to a 
pastor in a place that is perhaps hostile to sound doctrine. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to hammer home sound doctrine? And how deep does that doctrine hole go? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Could he not get into Crete and just shave off some of the rough edges of doctrine so as to win some of the Cretans to the Lord. Why is it important that we nail down sound doctrine and protect that sound doctrine in a world that is spinning far away from that doctrine? How do we divorce God's word from God himself and God's character? If we're in a right relationship with God, and I think the bigger problem is not doctrine divides, it is doctrine that's not been applied to my life is going to divide. Why? Because I'm going to be not living a Christ-like life. I'm not going to be living this doctrine the way God wants me to. And I think in some ways we have it backwards as well in a, in a very specific issue in that, you know, when it comes to dealing with sin and calling sin, sin, Titus is a great book that reminds us for believers, when it comes to professing believers, we need to judge that sin. And we, when it comes to life in the church, we need to go so far as in chapter two, we need to muzzle, literally stop the mouths, muzzle false teachers. Do not give them a voice. Don't, don't allow it. And judge doctrine and people's deeds in the church of professing believers very strictly. And yet we turn to chapter three and it basically says, be merciful and patient and cut sinners moral slack mm. is, is really what it's saying. We like to judge the sin of sinners, but we don't like to judge the sin of the church. And that's the exact opposite of what God really wants us to do. God wants us to judge doctrine and the deeds of those who profess Christ in the church and then cut moral slack to that unbelieving culture around us so that we might love them with patience and mercy and love and win them to the Lord. And then when they come to know Jesus and they profess his name and want to follow him, then we can start judging them more strictly on their sinful ways and, and their improper doctrine. But it's easier to flip flop it, but it, it really cuts us off on, from true ministry that God's given for us, even this book. When we talk about doctrine, I think you and I would agree that that's a massive pool of information. And so I know you're familiar with this idea of theological triage, right? This idea of there are major doctrines near the front of the triage that get pushed to the front because of their importance. Then there are other doctrinal issues that we may disagree on, but we can still fellowship. We can still worship together and they're not as big of a deal. I'm wondering, how do you understand theological triage when it comes to protecting sound doctrine? Clearly, we want to protect the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Mm -hmm. We want to protect those things. But a minute ago, you talked about the qualifications of elders being a husband of one wife, uh, male eldership. Is that the same level as the deity of Christ? And then how do you, Jonathan, in the church setting, apply what you're telling us there about uh, using and protecting sound doctrine, but with those levels of importance? How do you do that? I think first it starts with Jesus and the epistle of John, first John, John faced this in his day. And how did they outline good teachers from bad teachers is what do they believe about Jesus? Did Jesus come in the flesh? Was Jesus fully God? Was Jesus fully man? And the test number two, you know, so number one is Jesus. And number two is do their lives measure up with the word of God? And it does, it leaves it that broad. But uh, in a way, too, as well, though, that it's not like 
oh, you know, here, you got to check this list, check this list. It's a, are you growing your faith? Are you reading God's word? And are you applying it to your life as you go? And are you willing to be corrected? You know, or do you have your own doctrines and your own ways? And if someone confronts you about that, then, you know, the word of God, you won't let the word of God trumpet because this is what you believe. And, you know, so th that's what John gives us. And it is kind of that vague. It's make sure you've got Jesus and his salvation right. And then is your life more and more measuring up with this message that you say you, you know, you profess in, in the gospel of Jesus. So practically at the level of the local church, how does this work? Well, it's, it's challenging in the sense of, you know, I think it was uh, Amos that said, or Hosea that said, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? I, I would encourage you if you're listening to this podcast if you're in a situation in your church where you're just really, really, really uncomfortable with the doctrine that your church holds, and you really see this as a biblical doctrine and the word of God supports it, that I would just encourage you to, to find another church where you can fellowship and be unified in that. God has all kinds of churches and all kinds of denominations, and many of them love the Lord and love the gospel. And sometimes I think we just need to find a place where we have more people that agree with us. And, and, and I think sometimes we just, we can disagree. We can agree to disagree, but at the same time, encourage people to find a place where they're most comfortable fellowshipping and using the gifts that God's given them. Mm -hmm. It makes sense too, what you said about if we are majoring on the majors and the person and work of Christ and we're focused on him, mm -hmm. we are probably going to mature and be filled with the grace of God as we are fascinated by the person and work of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then some of those more tertiary doctrines, and we're not saying unimportant, but we're saying more tertiary doctrines, they're more put in perspective, aren't they? I'm not going to be quite as pugnacious, for example, which is one of the qualifications of an overseer, mm -hmm. is to be not pugnacious. I probably won't be as harsh on those tertiary doctrines if I'm more, mm -hmm. again, growing in my fascination with the personal work of Christ, those major things. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think that leads us into our next discussion point as well as it relates to the grace of God. Good. Well, let's go there. You took us there. Let's go. So Paul, then, as we come to chapter two, he lists a number of different groups here, Jonathan. He lists older men, older women, younger women, younger men and slaves, and he encourages them all toward godliness with the motivation being God's grace. So how does God's grace motivate maturity and self-discipline in the life of believers and not stagnation and licentiousness? Yeah. And I think the passage gives it to us right there. In chapter two, verse 11, it starts, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And there we see, of course, good works again, following up on, you know, if we believe Jesus died and rose again for our sins. I like the way that John puts it in uh, 1 John 3, I think it's verse 2 or 3, where he's talking about the coming of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, we're going to see him as he is. And then we're going to be like him. Mm. And our, our sin is going to be dealt with forever. But then it says this. It says, those that believe this will purify themselves because he is pure. Mm. If we look forward to Jesus's return 
if we're looking forward to that sinlessness and we realize all that Jesus did to buy that for us, to pay for our sins, then we're going to be more pure. If I think Jesus could come back at any moment, then I'm not going to be doing some of the lawlessness, the ungodliness, the following the worldly lusts, because I'm looking forward to his return. And as we look to that return and we think about the grace that God has given us in saving us from our sin and then ultimately redeeming us from that sin nature, giving us glorified bodies, allowing us to be in his presence forever, you know, that, that thinking on that grace and looking forward to the greater grace as, as we're made new, it gives us a perspective on the temporariness of our life, the temporariness of our troubles, the temporariness of our temptations. And just allows us, it gives us a victory in Jesus that, that we can have today before we're glorified. Hmm. You're really dipping into it, and Titus does as well in this letter, eschatology and looking at the end Absolutely. and the grace that is to be revealed, right? Mm -hmm. What is lying ahead and how that can motivate our pursuit of godliness today and our zeal for good deeds. Mm -hmm. When we talk about grace and the reception that we have received now, I know that I'm going to receive grace at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't wait for that. And I know you can't either. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense in which right now I am hidden in Christ. And that is a grace, a gift from the Lord. How does that, Jonathan, not, again, push me toward just throwing my hands up in the air and saying, I'm safe. You know, I've got my ticket to heaven. I can do whatever I want now. How is it that as I understand that grace that I now live in, that it actually propels me toward godliness, away from sinfulness, mm -hmm. and not just stagnation. Yeah. Uh, and the author of Hebrews deals with that in saying, those of us that are saved and yet continue in our, you know, or come to know of the gospel and yet continue in our sin, we're trampling the cross of Christ. We're, we're making null and void this grace that God's given to us. Paul to the Romans said, you know, should, since we can be forgiven of anything that we do, should we sin that grace might abound? And of course, the answer is God forbid. We No, we shouldn't. Out of this grace that Jesus has given us, this is what our lives look like. And, and I love how he breaks it down in chapter two, you know, older men, older ladies, younger women, younger men, employers, employees, you know, this is how we're supposed to act. And I love this passage as well, just because, you know, you see older men and women, young men and women, people of every economic background here in this passage, which tells us the church is for everybody. Mm. And it's unfortunate when we lack grace in our local congregations. And sometimes you have this tension between the generations of, you know, and I probably see it, see it and hear of it most when we talk about music, you know, because there, there is a hymn generation they know the hymns. They love the hymns. To them, that's the greatest expression of God's grace that they could sing, and they enjoy it, and they enjoy the style. And they don't like the modern praise courses because they don't know them. They don't really get the music, and they're not comfortable with it. And then you have a younger generation. They don't like the hymns. They just sound old. They don't understand the music. The music does nothing for them. They don't get the old words. They want the modern praise songs and the modern music. Unfortunately, without grace, we lock ourselves into these camps and you even see churches that, you know, you have hymn only churches. They, you know, they'll use a particular Bible and they'll only sing from certain hymn books and they only use particular instruments. And then you have other churches that anybody that's over 30 is 
kind of discouraged because they're not young and cool enough. And, but you see it here in Titus ministry to all the generations. And I think the importance of intergenerational ministry Mm -hmm. is very made very clear here, but in order to do this in the local church, we have to have this great grace of Jesus just to get along. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think COVID brought that to the forefront because it brought us all kinds of issues that we never saw before and things we've never had to deal with. And we had to learn grace Mm -hmm. for people that preferred masks or people who preferred vaccines, people who preferred not to have masks or not to be vaccinated, you know, and all the other issues that, that kind of swam around there with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, it all comes back to grace and recognizing what Jesus has done for us. And then is there any, anything that's too big that we shouldn't do for him? Certainly related to those issues that can sometimes divide churches when we lack grace Mm -hmm. near the end of the letter, Paul writes in chapter three, verses nine and following, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. How do we apply this today, Jonathan, this idea of foolish controversies? And how does this fit into Titus talking about doctrine and setting up a church and having qualified elders in place and being motivated by grace? Why at the end does he tag on this little recommendation this little command to avoid things that don't really matter but seem to matter in the day yeah and i think when you tie it back to stop the mouths of false teachers i think this ties in with it and i think it shows us how we do that you know someone gets on a a pet doctrine or starts to get off on a tangent that either isn't clear in scripture or is just made up then you know you talk to that person you talk to that person again, if they really won't listen to the the majority leadership of the congregation that has been humble and gracious and praying about it, then you'd have to ask them to leave. And, you know, most times in our, our situations now, anyway, someone like that, it's not going to get to that point. They're going to leave early anyway and start something else. I met one of those guys on the streets of one of our major cities in Toronto a few years ago, and he was, anti-established church and you know you can't have churches with pastoral leadership and everything else but he had his own little congregation that you know you should go to and it wasn't as organized and stuff and then he had a little hype man with him (laughs) a guy from his congregation apparently from the streets who would come up anytime he talked to someone and say you need to listen to this guy he knows what he's talking about and It was like, you know, you shouldn't listen to a pastor of an established church, but here is this guy being a spiritual, you know, an irrefutable spiritual leader of a local congregation he's starting. So he was a divisive man. There's no question (laughs) about it. And yet he was doing the very thing that he said he was against. And so really, you can see right through that. It really is just a power play. This is someone who just wants attention. They want to control what people believe and what people do and how they do it. And and those type of people, you, you need to rebuke twice and then then uh, graciously ask them on their way. Is it possible, too, that these can be well-meaning people who become fascinated with a tertiary doctrine? We talked about those primary doctrines. You talked about mm-hmm. the person work of Christ being primary and everything else kind of put it in its place. It's not unimportant, 
but see it as it's supposed to be seen through the personal work of Christ. But sometimes we can be fascinated about these other little doctrinal minutiae. And if those become huge, I think of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, where he says, you strain out gnats, but swallow a camel. You're majoring on the minors, right? I'm wondering if that could be this factious man or woman that have this hobby horse and it, they start viewing even the personal work of Christ, even Christ's bride, the church, through the lens of this one little doctrinal issue. Yeah. I'm wondering, does that make sense? Is this kind of one of those foolish controversies? Yeah, and I think I think even correct doctrine, you know, we can treat in unhealthy ways. Hmm. You know, when you know we're going to care about the doctrine more than we're going to care about a person. As I read the New Testament, I think it's very clear that Jesus intended. From the very beginning, uh, one man and one woman in a lifetime committed relationship. And if there is a divorce in the picture, then that person shouldn't remarry. Uh, I think the New Testament is quite clear on that. And yet, when we come to practical situations in everyday life, you know, with a couple that divorces and then gets saved and they've already remarried. And, you know, are they suddenly living in sin? We need to reestablish that original couple before God, because that's, you know, what God's word intended. Uh, you know, I think, in, and there are people that would say that, but, you know, I, I think we also take Paul's wisdom from first Corinthians seven. And we say, you know, we need to stay as we are, you know, as we come to, to know the Lord and find the Lord. But, you know, I think we, even in those things, we need to, we need to show some grace and not be pragmatic but at the same time, be gracious and, 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 and looking at, you know, what most glorifies God in this situation, you know, a children to have a father or, or you know, a children to not have a father, uh, a godly father in their lives. And yeah, again, we need to be careful with being pragmatic, but at the same time, I also think we need to do what's best for before God and, and for the lives of people as they grow to know the Lord. Jonathan, how would you pastor us toward gripping these two truths with white knuckles and not compromising. Doctrine is crucial. We do not want to compromise on that. And yet we need to be gracious. So both of these things at the same time, I don't want to let go of either one of those. How do I walk right down the center of that street? (laughs) How long do I have to answer something like that? Man, that's, that's challenging. I think Jesus's response to the woman caught in adultery is good go and sin no more. He didn't condone it, but he didn't outright condemn it either. I think in areas, you know, we would be pretty strong in relation. We would believe that eschatology is very important. The doctrine of the last things, you know, we would believe that Jesus is coming again for his church. And then there's going to be a time of God's wrath as God finishes his plan for Israel and sets up a kingdom with Jesus on the throne of David. And I, we would hold those things very strongly and believe that the way that you interpret scripture and rightly divide the word of truth is an important issue that should bring you to that conclusion. But at the same time, we can also find common ground with those who may not hold to that same stance. And maybe it's because they're not mature yet in their hermeneutic. It's because they've read more books than they've read the Bible, or, you know, they've just, you know, from the background and the way that they've been taught, they just see things a different way than we do. Uh, But I I think that we can all agree that Jesus is coming again. Mm. And the next thing we're to look forward to is Jesus coming again. And, you know, I think we can find that kind of common ground. I think we can have good, healthy discussions 
as we study through the significant passages about last things and, um, and practice the graciousness of Christ in that, not condemning people for what they believe or how they come to believe it, but graciously accepting each other before God as fellow pilgrims on earth. And I think there's a lot more room for us to agree to disagree than our culture allows for. And that's a whole other discussion, I'm sure for another time. But uh, I think Christ likeness is is the piece that we're missing mm-hmm. and uh, you know, showing the love of Christ, not the expense of doctrine, but at the same time, we don't all believe the same thing about a lot of things mm-hmm. outside of scripture too, but we need to learn to get along and, and accept people where they're at and, and who they are for the moment. So I hope that doesn't muddy the waters too much, but it, it's a fine line as uh, you know, we try and balance that, mm-hmm. you know, protecting sound doctrine, but at the same time, allowing people you know, the spirit to work in their life and to be discipled where they're at. It seems telling to me as I circle back to the first chapter, and one of the first questions I asked you that the overseer, the elders, the pastors who are really going to be wading into those tense waters that you just described, look how they're described to be characterized, you know, above reproach, but not self-willed. They're not to be quick tempered. Uh, they're not to be pugnacious. They're not to be out for sordid gain. They're supposed to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. These are character qualities that allow someone to wade into those mm-hmm. tricky waters that you just said and be able to balance mm-hmm. the truth and holding on to doctrine. In fact, they're told, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, as you highlighted, and at the same time do so with a graciousness that he later talks about. Mm-hmm. Lord, help us be that qualified. That is a wonderful balance and a tough balance that only our Lord really walked perfectly. And the importance, again, to to protect that sound doctrine by making sure the men that we establish in our churches as our leaders, you know, really measure up to these. Because it's easy to see if you get someone in leadership who is self-willed or you get someone in leadership who is quick-tempered or you know, I, I've heard of horrible leadership meetings at churches where guys want to take this out to the parking lot and settle it and things like that. Like, that's just not, that's not what Jesus wants. That's, that's not his leadership and that's not his church. So, and that's our first step in this book is to make sure we establish qualified leaders of the highest caliber. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the main thrust of this book, Jonathan? Why is it important? Why would God preserve Titus for us today? Protecting sound doctrine to promote good works. It's so important to live our faith. And I've been wrestling with this a little bit too, but I just preached on the life of uh, Cornelius, this incredible Gentile Roman soldier, every strike against him in the, the Jewish world. And yet he got God's attention and he was the first Gentile baptized by the spirit into the body of Christ, which is the church. What an incredible privilege. And one of the things that that his life was marked by was a practical faith of works. He did good deeds. In fact, it said the entire nation of Jewish people respected this guy. And this is a Gentile Roman leader of soldiers. There's no way that the Jews should have respected this guy at any level. And yet they loved him and respected him. And he really stood out to them. And why was that? Part of it was just a practical faith of works. And one of the things that I've been, you know, thinking about and convicted by is if I only do things because I get paid for them, I'm not really living my faith. And, you know, I think 
for you and I as knowledge workers, that can be challenging too, because how, you know, how much more do we do, you know, in counseling and we have to guard that as well. But, you know, sometimes for us, that means we also just need to get practical and get out and, and serve as well. So, and, and just shine the light of gospel in practical ways. But we do that and the proper motivation for that, it comes from proper doctrine. When we understand Jesus, who he is and who God is and what he's done, then we should want to help others. We should want to make connections in our community so that we can share the gospel and shine the light of Jesus. Well, you've partially answered this already, no doubt. But during your years of study, Jonathan, how has God used this book in particular, Titus, in your life to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness? Yeah, well, my students would not say I'm a young man, but by biblical standards, <laughs> uh, I'm still a fairly young man. You know, there was this threshold of, uh, I'm now in my 40s, so I'm now moving into the elderly status by biblical definitions. But I've always taken encouragement to, um, from the commands to young men. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, in the same way, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message should be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Hmm. And that to me is, is so important. I started ministry as a very young man, straight out of Bible college, traveling and preaching the gospel across the country uh, with a singing group. And I found myself in situations where I wasn't allowed to teach adult Bible classes and things because I looked too young or I, they, I was too young for them or whatever. But I've had instances even in my life recently where I've been accused of saying certain things in, in class or in a church or something like that. And someone has complained about it to someone who knows me. And the person who knows me, their initial response was, well, that doesn't sound like John at all. And to me, that was a, the greatest encouragement. And the life that I want to live is that, you know, when, when people say, you know, when rumors spread or the gossip strain, train starts, that someone will just cut it off right there and say, well, that doesn't sound right. And then they'll come and check things out with me and we can sort it out. And usually it's a matter of putting things in their proper context uh, because something was taken out of context. But that to me has been very important, especially for young men. And as I've ministered to young men for so many, pretty much my entire adult life ministry has been to college guys, to the young men listening, it should, we should never use the excuse or we should never allow the excuse to be used as, oh, they're just guys. And that can be thrown around in our culture as men are encouraged to be passive the characters are on TV, the young men and the dads are always the idiots that don't know what they're doing. We should just not allow that to be an excuse for us to just be said, oh, they're just guys. No, no, no. We need to step up, guys, and we need to step out front and, and lead. And it's not like we don't have fun. It's not like we don't we can't be sarcastic or we, we can't tease or things like that. But being serious about serious things and and allowing people to see our heart enough that they trust that we really love God and and we want what's best and we're humbly approachable. You know, if you have something against me, you can come and talk to me and I, we're happy to work this thing out as we pursue blamelessness to become those great spiritual leaders that the church needs. Amen. Well, thanks for the insights and help today, Jonathan. So much appreciated helping us understand Titus just a little bit better. It's a great book. It's a short one. So read it, pick it up and read it. It's my go-to if I'm out on spiritual retreat or just have a little bit of time. 
great little book packed with so much stuff. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.